live from New York. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move. And here's your need to know. Bipartisan boost, Biden's infrastructure deal sends stocks to new records. Tech time up. Congress closes in on new antitrust measures. And Nike, likey. Investors applaud strong earnings and a forecast upgrade. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Friday. U.S. stocks are on track for new records as earnings impress. The Fed says major U.S. banks can handle economic stress. And President Biden pushes for infrastructure largesse. And for anyone sick to death of my rhyming finesse this week, I'll stop next week, I promise. The major averages sitting at record highs and making gains pre-market optimism. This week helped by progress on those infrastructure talks and relief that it's not going to mean, potentially mean at least, higher taxes. Strong results from Nike today too, though. If you can see, there's a sleepy Friday feeling over in Europe. Asia already hitting the weekend in fine style, though. The South Korean Kospi closing at record highs. The Hanseng and the Shanghai Composite finishing higher by some 1% plus two. And some activist excitement over in Japan. Investors voting to remove Toshiba's chairman. That's a, a historic leadership change after years of corporate underperformance and fury over an alleged government collusion scandal. Shareholder fury on evidence in Europe too. Credit Suisse higher on reports that executives there are mulling a top-to-bottom overhaul after recent scandals. A merger with rival UBS or a breakup is reportedly under discussion too. A healthier outlook though for U.S. banks. Major U.S. financial firms higher after easily passing their Federal Reserve stress test exams, paving the way for stock buybacks and potential dividend hikes. Encouraging news for investors, it seems. The latest read on U.S. inflation, meanwhile, not so encouraging. The Fed's preferred measure of inflation up 3.9 percent year over year. That's way above Federal Reserve targets, of course, of 2%. Core PCE inflation hitting its highest level since 1992. More on all of this in our drivers. And Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, we can talk about infrastructure, but let's talk about those inflation sure. numbers first. Not really telling us anything that we aren't already seeing in the real world in terms of pricing pressures. But I made the point that is significantly above yeah. the Federal Reserve's target. None of this, of course, answers the question about whether it's transitory or not. That's right. And at least for right now, when you look at what's happening in the bond market, this was expected. You know, bond participants exactly expected this kind of number. What everyone wants to know is what these June numbers are going to look like. I'll I'll be really eager to see June data when it's finally ready because you won't have these base effects anymore. We'll have a better sense, I think, of of just where we really are right here. Because last year, don't forget, I mean, the economy crashed, actually cratered. So your comparisons here uh, can sometimes be a little tough to, to determine. At least for now, Julia, it seems as though um, the market is taking the Fed and a lot of these Fed folks at their word that this will work itself out eventually. So these numbers, you know, there's some important superlatives here for these numbers, but the market at least isn't freaking out. Yeah, you make a great point as well. What was expected and also the base The point last year upon which we're comparing these numbers is very tiny. However, in order to bring that average down, now you have to see a number of months and uh, quarters of teeny tiny numbers, which, (laughs) yeah, not sure we're expecting to see. Now, do not adjust your TV sets or your mobile devices, depending on how you're watching us. You did hear right at the top of the uh, show, and we were talking about this yesterday, a bipartisan breakthrough on uh, infrastructure and clearly 
stock market investors are rejoicing, whether that's because we see an additional five or six hundred billion dollars uh, of spending or whether or not we don't see tax rises in order to fund it. The question is, Christine, do we get it done? Can we agree it? Yeah, as the terrible expression goes, pigs are flying and hell has frozen over. They actually have some bipartisanship <laughs> in Washington. Whether they can actually move it forward is is the big question here and how to pay for it as well. You know, the president started on this uh, this mission for infrastructure um, with tax hikes on the very richest and tax hikes for companies. Um, that seems to be off the table for now. What we're talking about here is about $973 billion over five years. It's investments in the electrical grid. It's investments in in infrastructure, the kind of infrastructure that Republicans say they want to focus on bridges um, and roads. But this could be paired with another big spending package. The president sees this as part of, of other spending as well. So that's where the political trickiness comes in going forward. I'm just glad um, for another terrible metaphor that they're not just still stuck in quicksand, right? That we have shown that, that Washington can work. At least that's what the president has been trying to show, that Washington can work and you can do the nation's business. Yes, it is possible. Thank you so much, Christine <laughs> Romans. And speaking of bipartisan breakthroughs, maybe on big tech too. U.S. House lawmakers proposing sweeping changes to how big tech is regulated. The biggest reform of U.S. antitrust law in decades would affect the core business of Amazon, Apple, Google and Facebook. Claire Sebastian has all the details. Claire, it's way bigger than just antitrust, quite frankly. It looks at search power. It looks at harmful content. It also looks at competition on platforms like Amazon with uh, small businesses too. The question is, for all the content in these bills, is it possible to go from here to actually enshrining something in law? Well, there are a lot of steps left before we, we get to that point, Julia. It would have to uh, advance to the House floor, then it would go to the Senate and then the White House. But it seems there's a lot of work to be done even before it makes that next step to the House floor. A bipartisan group of California uh, lawmakers released a statement after the uh, the 29-hour markup yesterday. They said the bill text as debated is not close to ready for floor consideration. They said the package of legislation poses harm to American consumers and the U.S. economy, they, they say there are a lot of unanswered questions. So it seems that there, there might be some more sort of discussion and debate, even changes that could happen even before it advances to the House floor. Because, of course, as you say, these are, are, are very dramatic changes that these bills are, are talking about at the moment. They could prevent companies from acquiring future rivals. Read, of course, Facebook with the acquisitions of, of the likes of Instagram and WhatsApp. They could, they could stop companies from favoring their own products and services in, in the, on their platform. So, for example, Google with uh, YouTube appearing in search results. And the, and the last one, which is the final one to make it through the, the House committee, is the Ending Platform Monopolies Act, which could, in theory, force a company like Amazon to split its third-party uh, sellers, its third-party sellers on, on its retail platform from its own retail business, which really would be a sort of sea change to the way we see it operating at the moment. But there is a lot of concern. There's a lot of concern that it could impact uh, products and services that consumers rely on at the moment. There's concern around how it could actually in inversely affect competition. This was a statement from the US Chamber of Commerce. They said antitrust laws should not be rigged against a small number of companies. Such an approach punishes success and allows the government to pick winners and losers in our free market economy. So a lot of controversy still, even though it has made a step forward. Yeah, and you start asking consumers what they want and if it's going to mean uh, longer delivery times or less choice in terms of the products that they buy or don't get Facebook free anymore and you ask them what they want and uh, things get a little bit more tricky. We shall see. Um, Claire, 
in the interim for some of these big tech companies, it's less about watching what the government's doing and more about watching what workers themselves are doing. One of the biggest unions in the United States passing a resolution yesterday to perhaps one day facilitate Amazon workers, for example, coming together and forming a union. What more can you tell us on this? You've been speaking to them. Yeah, this is the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, which is a, a, a major union, one of the biggest in the US, 1.4 million members. They say that one of their, that actually their key policy priority now for the next five years will be organizing workers at Amazon. Now, whether they will be successful is, is very unclear. At this point, we don't exactly know what tactics they're going to take, but they're going to try to do some kind of nationwide uh, effort using the manpower that they've got, about 1.4 million members uh, in the U.S. They've also got timing, of course, with all the scrutiny uh, on, on Amazon around antitrust and, and workers' rights uh, and all of that. And this is not just about Amazon. They say even with the rhetoric that Amazon has had recently around you know, the $15 starting wage, they say that Amazon is driving down wages and standards across the, the, the delivery and logistics industry. This is what Randy Corgan, the national director for Amazon, told me about this. A UPS driver in 1996 was making $20.50 an hour. That's 25 years ago. You would be hard-pressed to find an Amazon driver today making $20.50 an hour. So there's a gap there that they've created. They may they may have a narrative to say that they're offering up something comparative, but comparing themselves to the minimum wage is irresponsible. This job is a tough job. It's an important job. And the pandemic has taught us that it's a very important job to our economy. Also, I've reached out to Amazon for comment. They have not responded uh, on this vote yesterday that passed this resolution from the Teamsters. But of course, Julia, we saw what happened uh, earlier this year at Bessemer, Alabama, that, that vote on trying to unionize that, that, that failed, that went Amazon's way. This is what the Teamsters are trying to do. They're trying to succeed where so far everyone else has failed. We shall see. Plus, Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Nike shares, meanwhile, surging pre-market with investors getting a kick out of their latest earnings. The company reported record online and North American sales, and it's predicting a post-lockdown boom too. Paula Monica joins me now. Plenty of Nike swoosh or tick marks here, whether it's, as I mentioned there, the North American business, but the growth in digital up 41% on the prior year, 140% up on 2019. Wow. These are stunning results, Julia, yeah. and uh, yeah. you know, investors just doing it today. Nike is going to soar, and that is going to be a big reason why the Dow is likely to climb since Nike is a Dow component. So I think what investors can take from this is that consumers in the U.S. in particular, but around the world in Europe and Asia also, are very rapidly getting back to normal and they are shopping for sneakers. They are buying athletic apparel and that is good news. You're seeing Adidas shares in Germany rallying on this as well and Under Armour stock is up pre-market too. So I think investors are making the bet that this is not just about Nike being a very solid company that's doing well. This is probably about the broader category all going to get a lift. Yeah, this is such a great point. And it's the recovery of the wholesale business as well that I took note of. Um, Dick Sporting Goods, Foot Locker, JD Sports, all the places where we saw contracts cancelled in light of the pandemic coming back as well as part of the business. What about Greater China? I mean, this has been one of the fastest growing markets for Nike. And of course, we went through that period where there were threatened boycotts from consumers there on concerns, uh, allegations of labour, forced labour in the Shenzhen region of China. What did they have to say? And what were they seeing in China? 
Yeah, definitely. I think it's a, a bit of good news and bad news uh, with uh, Nike regarding China. The bad news is that revenue growth, once you factor in uh, currency fluctuations, was only up about 9% year over year, which made China by far the slowest growing aspect of Nike's business, with sales more than doubling in the U.S. and surging in other parts of Asia, Latin America, and Europe. But the good news, you talked about all these boycotts. Sales were still up, even though there are definitely growing concerns about Chinese consumers and a backlash to the swoosh. They still bought more in dollars or yuan in this last quarter than they did a quarter ago. So I think Nike can take some comfort that even though the boycott probably hit growth, they're still growing. Yeah, we're cautious about sales being up just 17 percent to uh, what, one point nine three billion dollars in the period says something. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that update there. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The death toll in Florida has risen to four people after more bodies were recovered from underneath a building that collapsed on Thursday. Rescue crews have been combing through the rubble with search dogs hoping to find survivors. The mayor of Miami-Dade says 159 people are still unaccounted for. CNN's Rosa Flores joins us now from Florida. Rosa, and actually we just got the update from authorities that it is 159 people now that they're still looking for. What are are authorities saying about hopes of finding those people alive? You know, they say that there is hope. Uh, They say that overnight uh, they heard some noises, which, of course, is what family members at the reunification center are hoping for. As you mentioned, the number of people unaccounted for has increased to 159. The people, the number of people accounted for has also increased to 120. And we were expecting those numbers to fluctuate. Uh, here's what we know from uh, the fire department. They were asking people to, to fill out wellness check forms because they're trying to figure out exactly how many people were in the building that partially collapsed. Now, this is normal because here in South Florida, um, it's usual for individuals that have a permanent residence to live in this type of facility, so families, senior citizens, but also individuals who have second homes in South Florida. So these could be people that that are here for portions of the year and then fly back home to, for example, the northern part of the United States. We're also learning about the challenges that the firefighters faced overnight. We've learned from officials that there were fires that ignited and then reignited. I was here at about 10 o'clock last night when it started pouring. So the weather has has also been a factor. It's been raining. That, of course, adds water to the rubble. That adds weight. It adds more challenges. There's also been wind gusts. And if you look at the video of this partially collapsed building, you'll see that there are still pieces of this building that are dangling. There's pieces of debris that are dangling. And we obtained some photos. Um, My my producer actually... um, uh, John Cowles got some photos from the fire chief who that really show the layering of the uh, collapse. Officials describe it as a pancake collapse and you really see those layers. You see how there um, are one on top of each other like the layers of a cake. 
we're also learning how these firefighters are going into uh, this partially collapsed building looking for life. We've learned that they, what they do is they shore up portions of the building. They're working with structural engineers to make sure that it's safe for them to do that. And they're listening for signs of life. So, so Julia, this is a 24-hour operation. The firefighters that are working behind me have not stopped overnight. That's how, of course, we've learned now that the death count has increased to four. Um, but they haven't stopped, despite the fact that this, this, this work is grueling, it's painstaking, and extremely dangerous. Julia? Yeah, heartbreaking images and heroic work there to try and recover those that are still missing. Rosa, thank you for that update. And, of course, our hearts with all those involved and impacted. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks set to head skyward again with fresh records in sight for red-hot tech. A rocket trip higher, too, for Virgin Galactic. Shares flying pre-market as U.S. officials approve its commercial license to fly paying passengers into space. And speaking of space shots, Microsoft beginning the session at fresh records, closing Thursday's trading above the milestone $2 trillion market cap for the very first time after unveiling its latest Windows update. And other big cap tech names are having breakout moments too. Facebook, Alphabet and Amazon now up more than 5% over the past month, helped in part, I think, by stable bond yields. Okay, the World Bank partnering with the African nations to distribute an additional 400 million COVID-19 vaccines across Africa. But the bank also wants more. It says the best investment in an early economic recovery is to spend on vaccines now. Along with the IMF, the bank is asking developed nations to provide $50 billion worth of shots for lower income nations that will ensure a global GDP payoff of $9 trillion in 2025, they say. Joining us now is David Malpass, president of the World Bank. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show with us. Thank you so much. And I want to start with that fantastic announcement with regards to the 400 million shots for African nations. Just talk us through uh, this agreement and this process. Hi, Julia. Good to be on. And yes, it is a big announcement. Uh, the challenge from the beginning has been how do you get vaccines to people that uh, to the countries that are able to use that type of vaccine? So there's been a contracting challenge. We w the World Bank moved very quickly in uh, October to provide funding. Uh, and then the hard work begins of how do you actually match uh, existing doses or yet to be created doses with countries? What's been achieved in AVAT is they have contracts from Johnson & Johnson uh, that, that will actually deliver doses in the near term. So then the World Bank can finance those doses. We, we, we finance countries directly and the countries buy services from, in this case, we hope from UNICEF. Uh, and then that makes possible the, the vaccines themselves and the deployment. This is very important to have countries have programs where they can actually use the vaccines that are arriving. I mean, the aim here, and we've spoken to the head of the African CDC to push that vaccination rate to 60% by the end of next year. I mean, there's still so much work to be done, David. What did you see as the biggest challenge that you're tackling here? Is it the logistics of that supply? Is it the supplies, as you mentioned, in of themselves? Or is vaccine hesitancy across the continent also something that factors in here? 
you named all three that are important, the supply itself, then the logistics to actually uh, match the match the type of vaccine to the, the the vaccine that people want in a given country. You know, different continents around the world are having different preferences. So making that match uh, and then overcoming hesitancy. So our funding can go to all three. That's important. And we'll be making announcements on increased supply, the actual production of uh, doses in, in Africa uh, next, I hope next week. Uh, we're in the final stages of that. And so that gives you, you need more vaccines. You need the advanced economies to release to, to decide as soon as they can, meaning this week, next week, if they can decide uh, how many doses they're willing to give to the, or, or to sell to the poor nations, uh, that way the, the uh, developing countries can plan to receive those vaccines and how they're going to administer them. Each one is different. Some, some of the vaccines are uh, single shots, some are two shots. It takes a different system and they have different cold chains. So it's really important that the advanced economies free up their doses as soon as they're willing. Yeah, I mean, this is such a great point. The timing of these decisions is critical. The timings and the decision to provide more money is also critical too, David. And I mentioned the agreement, the announcement that you made with others like the IMF and said, look, developed nations stand to benefit most if we get more vaccines all around the world. The recovery will be quicker and developed nations will, will harness the benefits of that too. You were just at the G7. What were you hearing from those nations who have already provided money, let's be clear, but are providing the additional money that you're asking for? I think they're willing and they would like to do that, uh, but you know there are limited resources even in the advanced economies. So what we can say, or wh what I, I think is is clear, uh, if if there in an ideal world you would vaccinate worldwide all of the people who are most vulnerable, the elderly, for example, and down to middle age and uh, people that have pre-existing conditions, that would be an ideal system. But that's that's very hard to achieve. So everyone is trying to see how to make the system work. What we've done, the World Bank Group, uh, we, we've done two things. One is to uh, have a sizable money available to enhance supply. Uh, and then second, have a, a, a large funding available uh, that, that countries can use to buy the vaccines and to deploy the vaccines. So there's sizable resources if the, if the countries can get uh, anyone to give them contracts for the actual delivery, that's the breakthrough going on in Africa. They've, they, they have gotten a supplier who will supply, we hope, 400 million doses over the, that will extend into 2022. One thing I should mention in the, in the $50 billion uh, is clearly COVID's gonna be around for one year, two years, maybe three years. And so the amount of money needed is for boosters, for new production, and it extends into the new year. And so we need to, we need to keep pushing on each part of this uh, uh, barriers. Yeah, that's why we keep mentioning it and we will not stop. Uh, I Thank promise you, you sir. Um, but to your point, unfortunately, this isn't an, uh, an ideal world. It's going to be incredibly challenged, not just this year, but next year and beyond, particularly in terms of growth. And I was looking at the World Bank report from, from June of this year and, and the messages for all the growth gains that we talk about in China and the United States. 
lower income nations, emerging market nations are going to recover far more slowly. And actually, they're not going to recoup the losses from the past year, even by the end of next year. So we're talking higher debt levels, slower economic recovery and price pressures as well, David. How worried are you and where particularly do you have most worry? Uh, exactly right, Julia. Um, so I have substantial worry, and that's because the, the, the poor countries are being being left behind even right. the most. Uh, so uh, there's the debt levels. There's also the climate impacts that are unequal or going on around the world. Uh, and there's also the vaccination programs. The, the, what we want to do is have each country try as hard as it can to adjust to the new economy, that's the post-COVID uh, economy, and as they can contain the COVID itself through vaccines, through through distancing and other other techniques, uh, then they begin to have export markets. One, one spot of good news is technology is advancing rapidly. Just before I was on, you had this story about uh, the people, tourists going to outer space. Um, so that that's happening in that sphere. But very importantly to the poorest countries is the advances on digital technology. So we're, we're trying to push those forward because they bring people together. You can get information, you can get uh, social safety net payments, you can make digital transactions. For women in poor, poorer countries, one of the most empowering things is to be able to make a transaction on, on, a, on a cell phone. Even a, even a, a 2G cell phone can make a transaction and that changes lives. David, I have to say, you know, I've been looking at what you've been doing on climate financing, too, which is something you mentioned two things, climate and payments, actually, which I'm incredibly passionate about. And you've been doing some fantastic work in your first two years as president. I, I read that you provide more than half of all multilateral climate finance for developing countries now and two thirds of adaption finance, which is so important, too, because it's OK saying to a country, look, you have to clean up and improve some of these sectors. But what about retraining? What about the jobs that involves and the cost? of that transition. Talk to me about that very quickly, if you can, because I know I'm pushed for time because I have to let you go. It's, that it's a set of complicated issues for the poorest countries. They don't emit that much in greenhouse gases, but they get impacted. And so two thirds, we do two thirds of the world's adaptation, multilateral financing uh, to try to move people away from coastal areas uh, to try to have their structures stronger in the in the face of uh, uh, climate events. Uh, and so that's one example of the work. It, we just released a new climate change action plan this week, uh, which uh, which describes the goal. We want to integrate development with uh, with climate, climate in with development purposes, so the country can actually advance. And we also want to spend the money that we do. We'll, we'll spend uh, at least a hundred billion dollars over the next five years on climate-related issues. We want to have as much impact from that spending as possible, and that means choosing which things to spend on. Hit. Go, go for the big uh, for the big changers and the countries that can be can really have an impact in terms of their uh, incentive structure, for example. So that's some of our work. Oh, it's a lot of money. It's nowhere near enough money. So that's something else we're going to push for. Sir, please come back and talk to me about this climate report, because, as I say, we're very passionate about this on uh, on that show. And that's a whole nother conversation. David Malpass, president of the World Bank. So thank you for making time for us today. Great to chat to you. Thanks much, Julie. Thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. U.S. markets are open for business and we're seeing fresh records for the S&P and Nasdaq with investors taking that hot read on U.S. inflation in their stride. The Fed's preferred measures of inflation taking its biggest monthly rise. In fact, it's jumped since 1992. Nike shares fleet of foot, the apparel giant jumping over 10 percent after reporting record revenues and boosting its guidance. FedEx, meanwhile, as you can say, the opposite lower. The package delivery firm reporting stronger than expected numbers. But investors are concerned about rising costs. We know that's the case. Tesla, meanwhile, fully charged and up more than 10% so far this week. Japanese firm Panasonic disclosing today that it's sold its entire Tesla stake in its fiscal year ending March. Panasonic supplies Tesla with batteries. It says the stock sale will not affect its future relationship with Tesla. While some investors have pulled the plug on Tesla, though, this year, traditional automakers are surging as they ramp up their EV ambitions. Ford is up nearly 75 percent as it expects electric vehicles to account for 40 percent of global sales by 2030. GM is also up more than 40 percent as it plans to spend a whopping $35 billion on electric vehicles by 2025. Meanwhile, Silicon Valley startup Lucid Motors is opening another showroom, this time here in New York City. Joining us now, Lucid Motors CEO and CTO Peter Rawlinson. Peter, fantastic to have you on the show. This is a huge moment, another huge stepping stone, I think, in Lucid's life cycle. Talk me through the customer experience and what we can expect if we come to the showroom. Indeed, Julian. Here I am in our brand new flagship store here in the meatpacking district of Manhattan. This is the eighth studio that we've opened now in the US. We've got two in the Bay Area of San Francisco, two in Los Angeles, two in Florida, just opened in Chicago, here in New York, with Boston and Scottsdale, Arizona to come very shortly. And this is very much a studio experience. We see the car, this is not a green screen, the car, beautiful design, really, and that design sensibility is echoed and mirrored in this surrounding, this this studio, this boutique experience, where we invite uh, prospective customers to come in, in not a high pressure sales environment, but a voyage of discovery to learn about the car and the groundbreaking technology that's gonna help mankind transform to a more sustainable method of mobility. Yeah, I mean, what we can see behind you looks incredibly beautiful. Uh, among some of the more pertinent updates as well that you've provided us along with this opening is that reservations now, I believe, have topped 10,000. What does that mean in terms of money to you and in terms of commitment? What does it cost to make a reservation? Well, it varies. Some people have put up to $7,000 uh, or, or above that in the case of the Dream Edition, which is sold out. Uh, it's possible to reserve uh, a, a car now for just a few hundred dollars. But this shows the growing interest and momentum that Lucid is acquiring as we get closer to customer deliveries in the second half of this year. And as a result of that confidence, we this week announced an accelerated uh, plan of uh, investment where we're bringing forward $350 million into our budget between 21 and 23 and bringing an additional 6 to 7% capex into our plan through the next five years. We're going to accelerate our production capability 
in our plant in Arizona in Casa Grande and add an additional 2.7 million square feet. This is confidence in our business plan and we're planning for a very, very bright future. It's all about delivery, to your point. And you've also talked about how COVID wreaked havoc on the supply chain. I know you've got, what, some 250 plus international suppliers too. And now you're in the sort of quality control part of the um, production of some of these vehicles. Peter, how confident are you that you can fulfill those commitments this year? What are we talking about in terms of timing for the second half of this year? And of course, for next year too, where your ambitions really scale up. Exactly. And we're on track for this year and next year. We're going to have very significant growth as we plow ahead into 2022. Um, and, and actually, the company had a red letter day, Julia, just last Friday. We started our uh, quality validation run of cars. These are the production cars proper that we started in our plants in Arizona. The car behind me is a pre-production model. We made about 86 of those. That run has been complete now. And now we are making the cars that eventually we will sell to customers once we've got the quality right. And we're on track for that. Yeah, and you certainly can't get it wrong. It's funny, you know, when I look at some of the prices of these, the Grand Touring and the Dream, we're talking significantly above $100,000. And I was just looking at what Mercedes-Benz, which is typically America's best-selling model that transacts above $100,000. I mean, they've not sold more than 20,000 units in a single year since 2015. I think, in, in, and admittedly, these have been some tough years, 6,600 in 2020, 12,500 in 2019. Peter, who's buying these cars? Well, so many people now in this marketplace are just wanting an electric offering in the luxury space. I've spoken to so many people who are ready for this. And, you know, hats off to Tesla because they've changed this paradigm. They've changed the perspective of the luxury buyer. But they're looking for a luxury offering to replace their Mercedes-Benz S-Class, their high-end E-Class. And remember, when we talk about 20,000 units, we're looking at a world market, not necessarily just North America here. And that's a great point. So not worried about competition from GM, from Ford, from Mercedes-Benz. They're spending huge amounts. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting point, but I don't see there being a market specifically for EVs per se. There's a market for cars. And the more great EVs come along, we'll get more EV penetration into that market for cars, which is dominated by internal combustion engines. And I think you make a great point. I'm delighted, actually, that the Mercedes-Benz EQS is coming along because then Lucid Air can be compared directly against uh-huh. the very best that Stuttgart can offer. <laughs> we shall certainly do it. Peter, great to chat to you. Congrats on the opening. Peter Rollinson, CEO and CTO of Lucid Motors there. Thank you. We're back after this. Crypto volatility presents a unique challenge for investors looking to stay ahead of the game, especially given the lack of data and the fact that misinformation is rife. Enterchain analysis. It connects information that links real world entities to blockchain transactions. 
In English, it provides software that enables government agencies and private sector businesses across the world to detect and prevent cryptocurrency crime and money laundering. The company's just announced a new funding round that values it at $4.2 billion. And joining us now is co-founder and CEO of Chainalysis, Michael Groniger. Michael, fantastic to have you on the show. I know you have a lot more going on than just that. And your background was a founder of one of the biggest exchanges out there, uh, Kraken. Explain to me why you recognize the need for data. The data is needed in many, many ways in, in crypto. So I would say in the first, first early days of, uh, of cryptocurrencies, it was considered anonymous, untraceable, and so on. And if you have a completely untraceable economy, no one is going to trust it. So to generate the trust, you need a data layer on top of, of, of crypto. And that's what we built into analysis. Today, we have a data platform there. And the use cases for that is like anything from enabling regulators to have an understanding of where the fund flows, enabling law enforcement to follow the money and find the bad guys, as you would put it. And further on, it enables and empowers everyone investing in cryptocurrencies uh, to understand like what are the risks, what are the potentials, the opportunities, and so on in crypto. And that's all fed by data. There's so much in there. I'm already super excited. Okay, let's myth bust. Some high profile leaders, Janet Yellen, Jay Powell, for example, and some of them have clarified some of the comments that they've made. So they've raised questions about the extent to which digital assets, cryptocurrencies are used for nefarious purposes. What does your data say? What percentage of transactions are naughty? <laughs> yes, so, so uh, the transactions that are considered illicit activity is less than 1% today. So it's a very, very small part of, of the cryptocurrency economy that's considered illicit activity. So I think that's the biggest misconception. Further on, I think it's extremely important to understand that this 1% of illicit activity, the fact that you even know about it, the fact that we can see where it flows, where it goes, what kind of categories that it entails, that basically tells the story that that cryptocurrency is extremely transparent. And the big wins we have seen for law enforcement over the last couple of years in cases involving cryptocurrencies also shows the great transparency and why you shouldn't be so concerned about cryptocurrencies. You know, the pushback here will be, hang on a second, but look at the statistics I'm showing on the screen here. Uh, It's the currency of choice from ransomware attacks. We've seen enormous growth over the past year, 337% increase in, in payments to attackers. Why, to your point, is this being used for ransomware purposes? Is it because it's secret and a sophisticated way of hiding what you're doing or perhaps because it facilitates easy transfer of payments? especially across yes. borders. <laughs> I, I think you, you hit the point in your last, last soundbite there, because yes, it does. It's like, it's actually a really, really easy way to transfer money. And it, it's also, we have seen cryptocurrencies pick up in, in usage. We have seen a lot of people entering the space in terms of investments and so on. And it also means that if I send a, a request to someone for, for ransomware, I've locked down their computer and they don't even know what Bitcoin is, the likelihood that I'm getting any rewards there is very, very small. That's changed completely today. Everyone knows what Bitcoin is and everyone knows how to use it. So, so it also means that it's increased in popularity. It's also increased in popularity for ransomware. And that's one of the reasons why we've seen it gone up. The, 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 the fact that, or like the, the presumption that it's anonymous and can't be traced, that's definitely not the case. But yes, it facilitates uh, cross-border transfers. And in the world, for the jurisdictions we have today, if you move the, the money to Russia, 
whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's a wire transfer, they'll be gone for, for all practical purposes. It's the practicalities of this that I think are so important. The benefits of this in the real world also benefit those that are doing this for illicit purposes too. The question, and you raised it there, was hypothetically speaking, we saw this in the colonial pipeline case, the money was recovered. And this is something that you understand very well. How easy is it to recover a payment, a ransomware payment that's made in a digital currency like Bitcoin, for example? Yes, I think it's it's the best way to explain this is really to, to use a completely simple analog analogy here. So if you imagine that you, you took a ransomware for a painting, and now you're trying to uh, to recoup the funds there if you are law enforcement. So first of all, you hand over the, the big bag of money to someone, and now you're going to follow the money. You'll drive after the car. You might have put a tracking device in it. And then at some point in time, they're handed over to someone else. And those someone else are going to cash out using some service. And now they enter the door of that bank. And they do that in the belief that no one knows that they went into that door. But on the other side of that, you've got your painting. And on the other side of that, you have a law enforcement officer ready to seize the funds. In a digital world, it's exactly the same. The ability to follow the flow of funds, you're basically tracking where does the funds go. And at, that, at a point in time where they move into a service where you have some level of control or some level of access where you can either hack into something, get access to a password, uh, ask an administrator to, to lock down the account and so, you have an opportunity to seize the funds. So it's, it's mm. very much the same as in the analog world. Michael, I have about another minute. When regulators come to you, because I'm sure they do, and not only do they ask you for information, but they ask you for analysis too, do they walk away smarter? Do they walk away more confident that actually this is something that's here to stay and can benefit society? Or do they walk away going, okay, we have to kill this? They definitely walk away smarter. I've, I've, I've been amazed and really, really like, really enjoyed to work with our government colleagues and seeing how they over the years have become extremely smart on crypto and also some of the, I would say, biggest proponents. So if you talk to a lot of people within uh, various uh, public sector institutions, they are huge proponents of crypto. And sometimes you will hear more like from political sides, various concerns being raised. But I would say we have a very well educated uh, staff in, in a lot of the regulatory institutions today. Yeah. We shall see regulation coming for better, I think, hopefully, too. Michael Groninger, CEO of Chain Analysis. Come back and speak to us soon, please. Great to chat. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. The impact of blockchain technology and artificial intelligence is having on our daily lives is increasingly evident, I think. But now companies are combining the two concepts to try and open new business opportunities. We explain how in the latest edition of Think Big. Artificial intelligence, blockchain, cryptocurrencies can be difficult terms to understand, but these buzzwords brought together thousands of crypto enthusiasts in Dubai. Marcello Mari was one of them. He believes combining AI and blockchain will revolutionize the financial services sector. The big idea behind AI and blockchain is democratizing access to this incredibly powerful technology. It's a big idea potentially saving financial companies up to $12 billion a year. So what exactly is AI blockchain? 
If I'm going to ask anyone about these technologies, it's going to be tech scientist Professor Scott Stornetta. My friends call me Your Majesty. For the record, that that Your Majesty thing was totally joking. But he's commonly known as the godfather of blockchain. We felt that it could be a great leveling force, a great uh, equalizing force. Blockchain is essentially a chain of tiny bits of information called blocks stored on different servers. Experts say those tiny blocks improve the transparency, security, and traceability of digital transactions. So how does AI fit into all of this? AI is the human-like intelligence used by machines to automate problem-solving and data analysis. Having all the data standardized due to the um, use of blockchain to make it interoperable It's just like a feast for AI. We have blockchain that stores an ocean of information and AI which selects only the drops necessary to make informed decisions based on that ocean of massive data sets. With over 10,000 cryptocurrencies out there in the market, it's very difficult for anybody to make educated decisions. By combining blockchain and AI to predict cryptocurrency performance, if prices are set to go down, Marcello's company will advise customers to sell or buy if they're predicted to rise. The average user can just purchase the Dynaset token and that's it. There's not much more that they need to do. And, uh, and the AI will do everything else automatically. Now that sounds amazing, right? But critics say this tech is still developing and could take years to truly make an impact. But as companies continue experimenting, businesses won't be deciding between AI or blockchain, but rather a combination of the two. Kim Kileda, CNN, Dubai. And now finally, this Friday, this. Have you ever tried to stack M&Ms? When I tell them it's a whopping five, I think they're a bit shocked. They, they, they want to give it a go straight away and try and beat me. So it's a lot harder than it looks. After hundreds of failures, a British civil engineer broke the Guinness World Record for stacking M&Ms with a grand total of five. Four. Oh, no. No. And yes, as soon as the record was broken, he did eat them all. He's perhaps got too much time on his hands. But look, here's four I ate earlier. But if you look really closely, you can see a crack because I squished them beforehand and astonished my team. Genius. Oh, and that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. And have a great weekend. I'm off to eat the rest. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash country. Max subscription required.